Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this Neuroscience CME podcast. This continuing education activity is co-sponsored by Indiana University School of Medicine, CME LLC, and CME Outfitters LLC. This CME CE certified activity is supported by an educational grant from Janssen, Division of Ortho McNeil Janssen Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, administered by Ortho McNeil Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC. This activity is titled Addressing Barriers to Care, Strategies for the Management of Patients with Schizophrenia. Our distinguished faculty for this activity are Dr. John W. Newcomer, Dr. Henry A. Nasrallah, and Dr. Don I. Veligan. Dr. Newcomer, our moderator for today's activity, is the Gregory B. Couch Professor of Psychiatry, Psychology and Medicine, Director of the Clinical Trials Unit, and Director of the Regulatory Support Center at the Institute of Clinical and Translational Sciences, and Medical Director of the Center for Clinical Studies at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Newcomer has disclosed that he receives grant support from the National Institute of Mental Health, the National Alliance for Research on Schizophrenia and Depression, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Janssen LP, Pfizer Incorporated, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. He serves as a consultant to AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, litigation regarding medication effects, GlaxoSmithKline, H. Lundbeck AS, Janssen LP, Organon Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated, Atsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated, Pfizer Incorporated, Solvay Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Tikva Therapeutics Incorporated, Vanda Pharmaceuticals, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. He serves on the Data Safety Monitoring Committee of Dynapone Sumitomo Pharma America Incorporated, Organon Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated, Shearing Plow Corporation, and Vivas Incorporated. Dr. Newcomer also receives product development royalties for metabolic screening forms from Compact Clinicals and Jones and Bartlett Publishing. Dr. Nasrallah is Professor of Psychiatry and Neuroscience at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine in Cincinnati, Ohio. Dr. Nasrallah has disclosed that he receives grant support from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Janssen LP, the National Institute of Mental Health, Otsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated, Roche, and Sanofi Aventis. He serves as a consultant to Abbott Laboratories, AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Dynapone Sumitoma Pharma, Janssen LP, Pfizer Incorporated, Shearing Plow Corporation, and Vanda Pharmaceuticals. He serves on the advisory boards of Abbott Laboratories, AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Janssen LP, Pfizer Incorporated, and Vanda Pharmaceuticals. He is on the speakers bureaus of AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Janssen LP, and Pfizer Incorporated. Dr. Veligan is professor and co-director of the Division of Schizophrenia and Related Disorders in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio in San Antonio, Texas. Dr. Veligan has disclosed that she receives grant support from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Janssen LP, and Pfizer Incorporated. She serves as a consultant to Abbott Laboratories, AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Janssen LP, and Pfizer Incorporated. Over the next hour, Dr. Newcomer, Dr. Nasrallah, and Dr. Veligan will lead us through their presentation. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. A course guide for this activity, which includes slides, disclosures of faculty financial relationships, and full biographical profiles, can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 400 or call 877-CME-PROS. 
To receive CE credit for this activity, you may complete the post-test and evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test, or you can complete the credit request form and evaluation form, which are included in the course materials. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the activity. Welcome to Neuroscience CME TV, your personal link to the most widely recognized experts in the dynamic world of the neurosciences. developed by CME Outfitters, the award-winning accredited provider of continuing education in Rockville, Maryland. Hello, my name is Dr. John Newcomer, and I'm the Gregory B. Couch Professor of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Medicine, and Director of the Clinical Trials Unit at the Institute of Clinical and Translational Sciences at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Neuroscience CME Live and On Demand, the continuing education series devoted to the needs of the professional neuroscience community. Neuroscience CME Live and On Demand is brought to you by CME Outfitters, a best-in-class accredited provider of continuing education for multidisciplinary clinical audiences. Today's activity is also jointly sponsored by Indiana University and CME LLC, and we thank them for their involvement in developing today's activity. Today's broadcast is also being streamed live and will be archived at www.neurosciencecme.com. I encourage you to visit the site for more educational activities to help you and your colleagues in your practices. I would also like to remind you to stick around for our Neuroscience CME After the Show segment, where you're invited to call or email us with our, your most challenging cases or questions. Our goal is to further translate the evidence presented today into practical tools you can use to improve the lives of our patients. And with that, welcome to our show. Today's program is entitled Addressing Barriers to Care, Strategies for the Management of Patients with Schizophrenia. I look forward to discussing current barriers to care, but more importantly, to identify and strategize solutions that will help to improve the lives of our patients with schizophrenia. With me today are my esteemed colleagues and old friends, Dr. Henry Nasrallah, Professor of Psychiatry and Neuroscience at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine and Director of the Schizophrenia Research Program in Cincinnati, Ohio. Henry, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Also joining us is Don Veligan. Dr. Don Veligan is Professor and Co-Director of the Division of Schizophrenia and Related Disorders with the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, Texas. Welcome to the show, Don. It's great to be here. Thank you. Let's first take a moment to review the learning objectives for the program today. Our first objective will be to assess key barriers in practice that impact continuity of care in the management of patients with schizophrenia. We will also discuss how to implement treatment plans in concordance with patients that focus on improving their continuity of care. And finally, we'll discuss how to incorporate tools and measures into practice to improve the discharge transition of patients with schizophrenia. 
Henry and Don, before we get started, I'd like to ask our audience what they find to be uh, one of the big barriers or the biggest barriers to the optimal care of our patients with schizophrenia. I know you may want to pick all of them, but let's uh, try to figure out what's your biggest barrier to optimal care. Your options are A, non-adherence, B, suboptimal treatment regimen, C, medical or psychiatric comorbid conditions, D, lack of collaboration with primary care, E, lack of a support system, F is the stigma of mental illness and (coughs) conditions like obesity, and finally G, lack of resources or problems with reimbursement. So while we wait to collect all those responses from our audience, let me lay the groundwork for the types of barriers we're going to try to address today. Three categories, patient barriers, physician barriers, and finally system barriers. Uh, Henry, why don't you, uh, why don't I start with you and, and why don't you lead us through some of the most common patient barriers and some of the data that supports that? Well, the patient barriers are many and I'm sure our colleagues watching us know that and I'm just going to confirm what they already know, yeah. which is that we're dealing with one of the most severe illnesses in, in medicine, not just psychiatry. So schizophrenia is extremely severe, has very ref- oftentimes persistent symptoms, even though we can control some of the positive symptoms, the negative and cognitive continue. Uh, they all, on top of that, they have those multiple physical problems, yeah. comorbidities galore, uh, whether it's uh, metabolic, cardiovascular, or substance abuse, or a variety of conditions that make the care very complex and may lead actually to a lot of complication during therapy. Uh, they, not to mention, of course, the, the other issues that patients cannot control either, like lack of insurance, lack of resources, uh, uh, the, the uh, issues with, the, with medications and the side effects. And, and all in all, it's, it's really a very complex patient situation. And adherence, you've mentioned, is, is a huge part of this and, and impacts the long-term follow-up. We're going to talk a lot about that today. Don, let's talk about this, the whole issue of the discharge from hospital and how that interacts with the adherence picture. That's a big issue. We did a study following patients right out of the state hospital, and we saw adherence right away. I mean, they've only been in there five days, and they have all these new medicines to take, and they were taking a bunch of things before they ever went into the hospital. They don't know which medicines are to replace what. And um, so within the first 7 to 10 days, 25% of them were already non-adherent. And the longer you go out... The, the worse non-adherence becomes until at two years, 75% of the patients aren't taking their medications as prescribed. I think it's a, it's a tragedy that this happens Absolutely. every day in the United States yep. and nobody's doing anything about it. And the amount it. of money, can you imagine, oh, that's uh, going uh, to waste? We go to people's uh, homes and find bottles and bottles of pills yes. that are unused. But also the relapses, the real, uh, the real cost is to the patient. I mean, oh, absolutely. You know what I, hate about, <laughs> what I hate about the state hospitals, which you just described? I mean, it's true. This is true in other hospitals as well. But the state hospital system, John, you probably know that as well. Patients see a different doctor when they come into the hospital. They see oh, a different absolutely. doctor when they go out. And nobody talks to each other. Oh, no. But, and you the, know, the data that Don showed was very interesting. I mean, it's not even a linear fall off with time. It gets worse and worse as time yeah, it's passes. Yeah, geometric progression. Yeah. That's so, fine. Henry, we're all familiar with the Katy study, uh, the NIMH-funded Katy study. But there was also a CAFE study. Yeah. and. And, of course, all-cause discontinuation was the key endpoint for both of those studies. How, how does an adherence fit into that? Oh, the, these two studies, the, the KD in the chronic patients and the CAFE, which is comparison of atypicals in first episode, CAFE, 
uh, was exactly the same design as the KD in first episode. And you would think that lack of adherence is a problem with chronic patients. Turned out the discontinuation rate is identical. 74% in the KD, 71% in the cafe. Patients stopped their medications within three months. It's tragic what's happening with adherence in this country. This, this illness can be controlled yeah. if the patients stay on the medicine, but it never is. So, so Henry and Don, we, we talked about some of the most critical patient barriers. Let's shift gears and talk about some of the physician barriers because we're going to cover these different areas. What are some of the key physician barriers that we can address? John, you want to, or Henry, you want to start us uh, yes, off? Yes, I will. Uh, in fact... The, the single greatest barrier for physician is how to handle all the complexities, the vast array of physical and psychiatric yeah, and social problems yep. that the patient has. Uh, and, and there's no way a psychiatrist has enough time to address anything except the psychiatric. Substance abuse, the psychiatric oh, comorbidities. It's a handful. And then the physical Metabolic health syndrome. issues. Yeah. So you have, have to rely on, on a, f- a primary care provider. But that problem, here's the challenge, is that there's no time, no, sometimes no inclination, no 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 culture, no habit of communicating effectively with the primary care physician. And then the, the physician has to, to deal with, uh, with all kind of, of uh, lack of resources. I mean, how many psychiatrists have adequate resources, yeah. you know, support staff and, and, and medication availability, insurance? And the psychiatrist insurance. is on the front line for managing the pharmacology, and one of the other lessons from Katie was the pharmacology is imperfect. It is not a perfect uh, yeah. I mean, situation, yeah. that's not for sure. Not perfect efficacy and no. certainly not perfect tolerability. Don, do you want to talk about some of the other important barriers for the physician? Well, I think there are poor communication between the physicians and the inpatient units so that when the patient comes out, they don't know why they're on the particular medicine they're on. Um, even, you know, it's, it's never true that a patient sees a physician for an extended period of time in our system. And so you have to know why a person was taken yeah. off a of medicine, what yeah. hasn't worked before. You yeah. don't want to repeat the same mistakes. But I want to add something that is not talked about often enough, which is there are ample data now that psychiatrists do not abide with evidence-based medicine. That they, there's a lot of practices that, this is a physician challenge. There's a lot of evidence, but only part of the time do physicians refer to the evidence or use it in practice. They, they, they use experience. They use you know, guidelines yep. developed by, right. by experts, but not hardcore, evidence-based clinical trials. Well, and I think there's also a lot of problem with burnout, and they don't have the support that they uh, need. Can you blame them? I mean, they're uh, overworked. You know, they're absolutely. There are 200 patients waiting to see yeah, them. Yeah. You know, they're going to spend the most time and with And somewhere people. in their burnout begins to set in. Absolutely. You know, and, and burnout is a complex thing, but it, but it has to do with lack of resources. Yes. And we've got our poll results, uh, the audience poll. What, in your opinion, is the biggest barrier? Well, it's 54% non-adherence. So I think wow. our audience... I'm not surprised. <clears throat> I'm not surprised. Anybody yeah. who's worked on the front line in an acute care state hospital setting or veterans hospital, I think all of us have been to all these places. It dwarfs everything, yeah. John. And, yeah. and not, this is epidemic. Yeah. People have to recognize that non-adherence to medication is the single greatest challenge that faces psychiatric but, patients. Especially but it's never my patients. Oh, of <laughs> course, somebody else. The physicians know it's my a patients problem, are doing but my well, patients right. are doing what they're supposed to. But, but to be fair, many psychiatrists admit that adher- non-adherence, as you can well, tell from their response. And I don't see how they even, can, how they even know. But how are they addressing it? <sighs> you know, I, I, there's no excuse, frankly, for any psychiatrist not to, to look at a patient who's had 
two relapses in a row due to poor adherence and not do something about it. Well, it's, but it's multifactorial, as mm -hmm. we're going to go on and talk more about. And then the issue is exactly what do you do? I think the big disconnect we can say right now is that you've got a you've got obvious evidence that the non-adherence is huge. Yes. Some of your worked on, and you've got the audience recognizing that it's huge, and yet we don't see a whole lot of evidence of people taking some of the the more established approaches right. to to reducing adherence. So our our audience um, noted the continuity of care between psychiatry and primary care is also a barrier. Um, to both of you, what can you tell us about this issue, and how do we need to uh, you know integrate this? into our treatment approaches as it relates to our schizophrenia patients? Well, we know that information doesn't go Both either, either direction. Either way, yeah. <laughs> we know that our PCPs aren't getting the data from the psychiatrists they need, yeah. and the psychiatrists aren't getting any information about what the PCP is prescribing. Yeah. Uh, so the communication is a big issue. And I want to make a suggestion here, and I hope my colleagues listening to us would agree. Psychiatry is a team specialty. We work in teams, psychiatrists, yeah. psychologists, social workers, nurses, occupational therapists, pharmacists, etc. We need to bring the PCP provider into the team. Into the team. Yeah. They should Absolutely. be a member of the team. It should mm -hmm. be an identifiable member of the team that yeah. everybody can communicate there with. Are, stereotypes do get into the mix here. I mean, on, on the graphic, I think mm -hmm. we had showed um, that, that there's a, a published paper saying that the PCPs don't think so highly of the psychiatrist's communication skills with respect to I don't blame them. patients. I don't right. blame them. They, uh, you know how many PCP physician friends of mine complain to me yeah. every day in our institution that they don't have uh, enough psychiatrists to refer to, that they have to wait three to four months before yeah. they send a patient, and they don't get calls about them. It, it that also issue. goes both it ways goes both because ways. our psychiatrists don't get any data from yeah. the You're PCPs. Right. They, they, they don't know what the PCPs are prescribing, for example, for dyslipidemia right. and whether or not they should do anything. But I teach my residents how to do that. I mean, I have the opportunity to, to teach them good habits mm -hmm. when they're third and fourth year so, residents. So, Henry, so we know that this communication is a challenge. And unfortunately, for this patient population, medical comorbidities are huge. Enormous. And, and particular, particularly cardiovascular risk, metabolic risk, what the American Diabetes Association mm -hmm. is now calling cardiometabolic risk. How does this lack of coordinated care impact management? And, and you had a tremendous paper that came out of the Katy data. Yes, I think this is the most alarming piece of information that yeah. came out of the Katy, in my opinion, uh, showing on the slide uh, that is displayed the high proportion of patients that we assessed when they entered the Katy study, 1,500 patients, outpatients in the U.S., had a very high proportion that have, di have diabetes but had never received treatment for it, have severe hypertension, have never received treatment for it, 62%, have very high cholesterol or triglycerides, had never received the statin. This is, a, a, in my opinion, a, a severe neglect of the physical oh, health of the mentally ill. Yeah. Why are our patients not receiving adequate standard of care? Yeah. Well, and the leading cause of death in this population is. is premature coronary heart disease. Yeah. But it, the other psychiatry angle on this, I, I think we were talking about before the program, is there's now great evidence uh, outside of psychiatry now coming into the psychiatric literature that inadequately treated hypertension, for example, That's has right. an adverse cognitive effect Absolutely. in right. terms of long-term cognitive outcomes. So here the We're working so hard to, <coughs> to, to get a cognitive enhancer, yeah. right? And, yeah. and what we could do already before any of that research pans out is we could be treating 
the hypertension. And yes. my guess but is that even if we get great cognition enhancing treatments, if you don't treat the hypertension, you're not going to maximize but no, the outcome. Clinicians are not making that connection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not aware that just managing the hypertension can have really great positive impact on yeah. the cognition right. of the That's patient, right. which means they can work better and go back to school. Now, Don, we've talked about patient barriers. We've talked about some critical physician barriers. Let's move on and talk about the system barriers. Our audience poll noted that the other thing that came in second after the adherence was yes. the inadequate resources. Let's talk about that. Um, Don, you know, can you review a little bit of that for us? Well, there are, are huge problems with the number of personnel that are available to, to see these patients. Mm -hmm. um, our doctors are overbooked. Our case managers are overworked, which adds to the burnout, as you, as you talked about. Um, our community mental health center doesn't often know when their uh, their clients have been hospitalized and when they're discharged, and there's That's not terrible. a good liaison between yeah. inpatient and outpatient. Uh, so we don't really know how to work together for a coordinated treatment plan because there's I, no communication. I wish there is an electronic medical record system. That, well, and the, the places that have electronic medical records, we can pull up yes. all of the stuff about how people are doing physically right yes. there in our yeah. office. The but VA, the, but the, the places VA that is a great the model VA is for great. that. I mean, Absolutely. the VA has set the tone, but nobody's following. I mean, yeah. Well, and uh, so it's in Missouri, in the state that I'm in, and I'm involved with Medicaid. We've got a, a program called Cyber Access where you can log in with mm -hmm. your patient's Medicaid number and you can see all the hospital visits, all the scripts they've filled or not Absolutely. filled, all mm -hmm. the uh, c procedure codes and diagnostic codes and see all the doctors that they're seeing. Uh, it's sometimes quite informative. The funny thing is not everybody uses it the program. It takes too much That's time. A, it's a time we've, we've, issue. We've done yeah. some yeah. similar things and, yeah. and people but, don't have the time. But you know, they were talking about the system of care. Let, let's look. Let's, let's step back and look at the public sector which takes care of mm -hmm. the bulk of schizophrenia right. patients in this country. The presidential report what yes, said the that it's broken. Freedom Commission. It's broken. It's I, a non-system. I don't want to use the word broken. I want to be much more vigorous and say it is a catastrophe what's yeah. happening to our patients. There's don't, no excuse. T tell us a little bit about that. I think we have a graphic that we prepared. Well, we know what helps these patients. We, we have evidence spanning decades that we know what works and we don't use it. Uh, it takes about 20 years for some evidence-based practice to make it into to filter to, down mm -hmm. to, yeah, cl to clinical care. Yeah. So now some of the problems, it's often cited as a reimbursement issue. And, um, you know, we, we can talk about that. I, I do think that it, there tends to be a little bit of a misunderstanding. Some of those provider-provider communications are reimbursable, in fact. They, they are, but you have to know which ones. And you also yeah. don't get to see a patient during that time. And they're, the, you're, yeah. the, you're, the waiting room is full. So what's yeah. your choice, to see the patient? or Well, to... I think this is where the medical directors in our audience can really help the staff in, sure. in those yeah. facilities to try to maximize know, opportunities for reimbursable communication. Yeah. But let, let, not, not everything is uh, necessarily, not all the settings depend on reimbursement. Yeah. I mean, the, the state hospital system, the community mental health system, the VA system, I mean, it's guaranteed full care, salaried employees yeah. that don't bill. There's no reason why they cannot communicate. Well, and effect. we've made a lot of great strides in the last few years. I mean, I think there's significant inroads right now to try to achieve some policy wins, getting uh, CMS to... to consider the idea that psychiatrists could function as the healthcare home mm -hmm. uh, for patients. But if with, with that privilege comes responsibility, it means we're going to have to 
oversee all of those efforts. Now, we've got another case. Let's, let's demonstrate an example of how all these barriers can, can interact in the real world. So let me present this case of Michael. Uh, Mr. Jones is a 23-year-old male. He's got a past history of schizophrenia for the last three years, history of medication non-adherence, not surprising. He does have a history of substance abuse as well. Now, his psychiatrist, uh, you know, did uh, good medical screening, did a lipid profile, fasting Which lipid is profile. It's rare, but it <laughs> good that it happens. And the fasting triglycerides were above 250 milligrams per deciliter. And we know that the clinical threshold where you're supposed to intervene is 200. So a referral was made to primary care physician to evaluate the medical condition. Unfortunately, when the patient went to the referral office, he was unkempt, no insurance information. He wasn't sure why he was there. The patient was told to return at a later date, but no appointment was made. And and then the patient went home very frustrated, stopped taking his medication, his psychiatric medication, and was hospitalized one month later. A really typical scenario. This this is classic example of a patient falling between the cracks, even at one level here. Well, and what's so hard about giving someone something written to take with them to their doctor about this is what's wrong with me? So (laughs) so we've got got another audience poll. So I'd like to ask a question to the audience based Based on your current knowledge of Michael, what do you think needs to be done at this point to improve his clinical outcome? Your choices are A, address the medication non-adherence, B, reschedule the appointment with the PCP, C, re-explain to the patient the referral goals, C, contact the case manager who could maybe facilitate the next visit to the PCP, or E, all of the above. And we'll give, uh, give us a few minutes to collect that. So adherence uh, almost always comes up as a barrier to treatment. Don, we, we know our patients struggle with this. What can we do as physicians or as the team overall to identify the non-adherence problems before it causes trouble and then start to address it? Well, it's very difficult. One of the first questions my doctor asked me is, are you taking that medicine? And I say, yeah, I'm taking it. But you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to take it, you know, multiple times a day, and I might be taking it every other day. It's oh. how you're taking it. That's you trust, the key. You trust but verify. Right. Right. So it's how you're taking the medicine and how you remember to take it. Those are the key questions to ask. And physicians, really, all they have, we know from from research that um, in whether it's a clinical study or clinical practice, that the Mm. way we find out is by asking our patients. Self-report is the most common way of finding out if people are taking their medication, and self-report isn't always uh, the best. So, so how about physicians, though? I mean, we, we know what these barriers are. We're trying to now solve it. What are the approaches that, that, that physicians can start to take? Well, first of all, we know that physicians aren't that great at identifying non-adherence. Mm. We, we find that, you know, correlations between mm-hmm. um, electronic monitoring and physician ratings of adherence are, are very poor. Far apart. Um, yeah. so and guessing, it's hard guessing, to, guessing doesn't, doesn't work. Doesn't and work. usually they, they <clears throat> tell by how the patient's doing. If the patient's doing better, they must be taking the medication. And it's not very accurate. And no. how do you get the dose right when you don't know how much of the medication the person's taking? They have a very difficult job. But, yeah. you know, but in defense of all the clinicians, uh, isn't, and you do research in, in mm-hmm. adherence, this is one of the toughest areas to do research in, oh, and we still don't have a perfect there's way no to ensure standard. there's, there's no gold standard. There's no gold standard. Recently, um, Matt Byerly came up with a brief adherence rating scale, which I think is really good because what it does is it sensitizes the person 
to that they may have missed some doses before they say what percent of medication they've taken over the past mm -hmm. month. And so uh, it, it has been shown that that scale has some relationship with electronic monitoring, and that may be something that's How very short. How many items? How many items? Three, I think. And oh, that's It's very good. brief, less than two minutes to give so it. So clinicians can um, use so it, but do they know about it? it? Has it been disseminated? Um, as far as I know. We'll try to get it onto the web page. Yeah, okay. yeah I think it would be so, helpful. So, Don, you know, let's start to talk now about these approaches to address non-adherence, to, to address, to improve patient outcomes. Maybe we can, uh, I think we have a graphic where we can just talk about, in general, 40,000-foot view, how do we start to modify the, the plan? Right. How do we modify the environment? And then I think we can talk about medicines, too. Well, what, what the first thing you need to do is you need to customize the treatment for yeah. the client. It has yeah. to be patient-centered. I have doctors that prescribe meds at 8 in the morning and 8 at night, and the person doesn't get up till, till noon. noon. Right. And they don't <clears throat> think that they should wake themselves up to take a dose of medicine. Yeah. So, you know, ask the person how they spend a typical day, when do they get up, and try to customize the, the medication around their schedule. And I think that's very helpful, but doctors don't always do that. Um, and what about cues in the environment? Absolutely. We use a lot of uh, cues in the environment in our studies where a case manager will go to the home, put up signs, use pill bottles, um, checklists to help right. people remember to take their medication and go to their doctor's appointments. There was a study actually, uh, Don, uh, where they used cell phones. It was a small study. Cell phones and is good They just too. reminded patients by cell phone or a buzzer. Time mm -hmm. to take your medicine, and it did, it did work. Sure, Anything sure. to just to remind the patient. Now, on the graphic we've got up, you know, modifying the medicine can also <laughs> have a big impact, Henry. I mean, this is oh, obviously we have an We have ways to bypass this since 1975. For 35 years, we've, had, we've recognized this problem with the revolving door syndrome, yeah. as it was called in the <clears> old <throat> days, and, uh, and the, the uh, industry developed long-acting medications that can actually circumvent that. But you know what? They're barely used. They're, they've never yeah. been used it, and still are not being used. They're used 2%, used. Come, 2 we'll, of all antipsychotics. We'll come back to the long That's just that's inexplicable. Yeah. But, Don, what are some tools that clinicians can use to support? I mean, we talked about these techniques and strategies. What about the tactics? Sure. If, if we had a graphic. Sure. If people are going to uh, be on oral medication, it's important to have pill containers. They're yeah. simple to give. The people will mm -hmm. give them out for free. And teach people yeah. how to how to fill them and yeah. using signs so you can't leave your house without noticing that you know you need to take your medication. We go to people's homes. They don't often have calendars and alarm clocks and watches. The fact yeah. that they get to their clinic appointments at all is a mystery a to me. So, <laughs> so these are very simple things you can do to help people, and we know that they work to help people take their medication. So, so Henry, is there evidence that, that the phys physician and the system interventions can actually change the numbers and improve adherence and improve outcome? Yes, there, I mean, there are solutions to this problem, and, and some of them are being implemented as we speak. I mean, many of our colleagues listening to us probably are using or have an ACT team. Yeah. Uh, assertive community treatment team has made a big difference yeah. in following the, the most country. severe patients and bringing them in and cleaning them up and educating them and medicating them and then re-entering them in the community. Uh, the VA has a what's called the MICAM, uh, Mental Health Intensive Care Management, Again, very similar to ACT, I mean, mm -hmm. but the principle is there. Uh, there's also you know, evidence-based uh, quality improvements. Uh, the, the, the TMAP in Texas was a pace setter yeah. that other Absolutely. states have followed. Uh, tell, you, know, you know a little bit about the TMAP. 
Well, <coughs> basically, you know, you prescribe medication based on how people are doing. You, That's right. you do assessments of their Evidence symptoms, and if their symptoms don't get better, you do something to make them better. And but if I can plug NASHPID, the National Association of State Mental Health sure. Program right. Directors, using what's known, putting out some policy statements saying, let's use some of these effective approaches. But, you know, I, to be honest, not too many clinicians are following a rational algorithm. Mm. They follow their own. They've tried, mm -hmm. they've tried a few things, and they follow their own pattern, but there are actually some well-developed, evidence-based options that you can follow one after the Absolutely. other. Absolutely. Let's and talk we know about that, that so the Dawn, data shows th that there it are, works. There are some interventions that involve the whole treatment team here, mm -hmm. evidence-based, as Henry's saying, that can actually improve outcomes. T tell us a little bit right. about like well, CAT and FarmCAT. Sure. We developed Cognitive Adaptation Training, or CAT, which is an in-home program where the case manager goes out and puts up signs and checklists and helps people organize their medication, uh, which can be pretty interesting, um, and help people to wake up at a, the right time and follow a daily schedule so that they have a routine around which to build taking medication. A rhythm. Give them a rhythm Absolutely. of life. Absolutely. Right. And so we, um, we compared cognitive adaptation training, which works with many different areas of activities of daily living, including um, adherence to medication. And we compared that to FarmCat, where we work only on improving medication and getting to your doctor's appointments. And we compared both of those to treatment as usual in a randomized trial. And what we found is that people really do take their medications if you use these cues. They take them at about 80%, which is, you know, very good compared to 60% or 50%. This is actually, it's really worth underscoring this. I mean, the interventions work. It really works. It's not wasted time. And if you think about the cost of hospitalization, both the personal level and the, the economic level, I mean, it, it's crazy not to do these sorts it of is. approaches. And, and, it is, and we found that, in fact, you know, if you do it, people don't, yeah. Uh, have symptom relapses. And you actually see results. Oh, sure. But tell me, how long does it take you to train a staff member to do FarmCat, for instance? It's, is it It simple? doesn't take very long. It's quite simple. They need to learn uh, to understand the model about cognitive deficits in schizophrenia and how they impact functioning. And it's quite simple to teach. We do a little on-the-job training and a little bit of didactic training. And they can be out there, um, you know, within a week. And we're going to make sure this resource is on the web, yep. too. We'll have some yeah, I, th I think our listeners there. need to know what, what is there and, and how they can get training for it. Sure. And repetition, you know, there is a cognitive problem in schizophrenia, but repetition actually overcomes most of that problem. Well, and re yeah, absolutely, yeah. a routine and also cueing behavior that you want. Sometimes if you hear a phone ringing, you know how you can't stop but pick it up. If you cue behavior, a lot of times you don't have that internal dialogue. Well... I have to take my medicine. Am I really sick? Am I not sick? Yeah. You can just bypass that yeah. by cueing yeah. it automatically. We got the results yeah. of our poll. Uh, so let's go back to Michael and see oh, what our audience goodness. thought would be the best choice. Mm -hmm. And overwhelmingly, all of the above. I mean, that was that was. A we need softball. to do a lot, in other words. Yeah. 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 Yeah, only but, if, we, if we only had all of the above to really yeah, choose from. Yeah, that's the right. problem. We, we know that all of those things have to happen. How often does it happen? Though? Okay, so, so Henry, we talked about... Uh, tools and resources to improve uh, adherence at the sort of behavioral level. Let's talk about medications. You know, we, we alluded a little bit earlier to long-acting injectables. Some patients, it's really going to be an option. And now we've got conventional antipsychotics in long-acting injectable form, atypical or second-generation antipsychotics. Can you review some of this evidence? Yes. Uh, look, we've had numerous uh, antipsychotics. Uh, I think we have at least 50 to 60 oral antipsychotics developed over time. Yep. And uh, 
to to a drug. I mean, if you examine all of the of all of these drugs, they are rarely adhered to, because the oral the the oral habit the oral method of taking medication simply doesn't work in schizophrenia. There are patients who have no insight. I'm not sick. Don't treat me. They have negative symptoms, amotivation, apathy. Mm -hmm. They want to do anything, including drug taking. They have cognitive deficits. They genuinely forget. And they have, of course, aversion to side effects. They have substance abuse, which makes them forget everything. When you add up the factors, these oral medications are being wasted because they're not being taken. Absolutely. And the patient is relapsing again yeah. and again. I like to say that schizophrenia can be a very different illness than what is widely accepted, that it's a malignant disorder. If we stop the relapses from day one, there is no reason to let the patient relapse. And, and that's where the long-acting have been developed now for decades yeah. and not and hardly used, like Don was saying. And those medications can at least take care of stabilizing the patient permanently in terms of the... The, well, the and, and what's really important is you know when the person's not taking their medication because right. they didn't come for their shot. Yeah, yeah. Now, of a visit now, some of the things that you mentioned, Henry, though, that contribute to the non-adherence, side effects, for example, right. we don't dodge that with a long-acting injectable. It's well, you can actually m minimize it. The, mm -hmm. the long-acting are slow-release in a way, yeah. and they have actually a better profile than the yeah. oral in some cases. Well, mm -hmm. I, think the, you know, I think we can fix some of the problem. The taking the medicine can be fixed. I mean, I think the problem, it's still in the physician's court to yes. pick the medicine and to look at the tolerability-benefit ratio, because if you get committed by a long-acting injectable to drug XYZ, right. you're going to have drug XYZ side effects. Right, so but that, that choice is also individual to the patient. Some people can tolerate one kind of side effect right. and not right. another. Well, the, well, this is why I'm thrilled that we've got a range of, of now long-acting injectable drugs. The atypicals have much better profile. Granted that they, some of them may cause metabolic side effects, but the acute tolerability issues are far fewer. The old uh, flufenazine and haloperidol injectables did produce akathisia and dyskinesia and thyroid dyskinesia, but actually they worked. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's, here's on this but uh, slide. But they were underutilized too? They were underutilized yeah. because clinicians didn't want to impose on the patient and give them an injection, mm -hmm. and also they were afraid of the, the side effects. But frankly, look at this study from 1979, I think. Yep. 30 years, uh, we've known for 30 years that the same medication can have a tremendously better outcome in relapse prevention when given injectable Absolutely. compared to oral. Uh, and this is flufenazine. The same data exists now with the other atyp yep. uh, atypicals or typicals. Yep. So why are we not getting the biggest bang for our medication yep. dollar? Yeah. Well, and I think in one of those, I think it was the fluphenazine study that you just talked to. Right. Um, this is haloperidol that yeah. follows it again. And I think one of them had a sub-analysis, at least, where some of the patients taking oral agent had plasma level confirmed That's adherence. Right. And they still did better on the long-acting injectable, right. which that, always was a bit mysterious. You know, frankly, I think that the slow, steady ex uh, exposure of the brain to a to an optimal amount of blood level is better than the peaks and valleys that happen every day with oral. That was the standing explanation. Right. But yeah. that, that has nothing to do with yeah. adherence. That's a separate issue. But adherence is the key issue yeah. here. Mm -hmm. So let's, you, you have a graphic for haloperidol as well. Yeah, haloperidol, various doses, again, and uh, showing that at the, at the adequate dose there is uh, excellent relapse mm -hmm. prevention compared to a very tiny you know, dose that's uh, like nothing, right. not adequate. Uh, but also the next slide uh, sh shows... Uh, the the long acting uh, injectable uh, respiridone, which is one of the atypicals, oral respiridone, good drug, but it doesn't work yeah. because it's not being taken. Yeah. The atypical don't work injectable, if you don't take them. <laughs> the injectable works much better. 
How many and times do we have to say that? We didn't have time to fit all the graphics in, but of course now at this point we've also got paliperidone palmitate, yes. a long-acting injectable, yes. and approved just yesterday was olanzapine. Right. Olanzapine is long-acting, and yeah. I know Otsuka uh, is working on it. People are all long-acting. Yeah. Finally, I think the pharmaceutical companies are waking up to the fact that it's better to develop the injectable formulations. And you know what? I believe that this will be followed by a, a, a culture change. Uh, over, so. over the, I, I really think that half our patients, at least half our patients, should be on injectable these days because they keep relapsing purely due to lack of adherence. Now, but a lot of physicians, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years, and today say that the don, you know, the physicians say the patients don't want That's a long acting injectable, but the evidence suggests otherwise. The evidence suggests otherwise. Um, Peter Wyden, for example, did a study uh, where people were randomized to either an oral medication or a long-acting injection. It was a recommendation, mm -hmm. and they spoke with their doctor, and the majority of people accepted long-acting recommendation that were randomized to long-acting injection. And so the issue is if you spend some time with psychoeducation and a little bit of time of, with motivational interviewing, you can get people to agree to the medication. They understand that you recommend it, and they, and they accept it. Mm -hmm. But... Who, who nobody will do that, yeah. and they use a lot more of in, injectables in other countries than we use. So right. they must be doing yes. something right. Yeah, in Europe, they thirty about thirty percent, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that, I mean, that's a tenfold difference: three versus right. thirty. Yeah. What, what, they're ahead of us in some ways, which right. I, I don't like. You should be ahead of them. <laughs> that's right. So Henry, let's talk about uh, assessing and managing. So, so right, we aren't going to dodge side effects with. Right long-acting injectables, you know, that might solve one piece of this puzzle, but, yes. but how do we assess and manage side effects, whether we're on an oral or an injectable? Well, like you said, there's no free lunch. Yeah. Uh, we have to fight disease, but we have to pay a little price, but that, that's where we, a, a physician, uh, a nurse practitioner, always balances the risk-benefit ratio. Okay, so side effects are, are there. We have to tell the patients about them in advance. Oh, absolutely, because yeah. if they're not ready for them, forget not, it, yeah. they'll just go off the drug. Uh, yeah. And we tell them, look, if you get uh, you know, headache, or dizziness, nausea, whatever, don't stop the medication. Yeah. These are initial tolerability side effects, which may go away. So some physicians educate the patient, say, wait it out, it'll go away, and many do. Uh, for some physicians, rush and, and switch to another drug. Yeah. I think that's premature. Uh, some physicians add a drug to counteract the side effects, which has its drawbacks, too. Yep. Now you have the side effects of cogentin, yep. uh, dry mouth constipation, blurry vision, acute angle gl closure glaucoma, cognitive deficits, on top of EPS. Yeah. Well, I, and I, you're, it's much a more complex regimen. And, and this, now that can start to problems with adherence. adherence. Right. Yeah. And w every time I've asked a patient, do you, I, I lay out the risk-benefit of adding the benztropine in order to treat right. EPS and say, meanwhile, we're going to try to lower the dose to make this go away. Nobody willingly wants to yeah. go on to the benztropine. Old habits. I mean, Old habits. Yeah. And, now, but back to the, the side effect slide. I mean, the most important side effect from the standpoint of premature morbidity and mortality is going to be the weight gain, which we see yes. with all these agents to mm -hmm. varying degrees. But, you know, even before the atypicals were shown, some of them at least, to have metabolic side effects, we've always had the principle that you have to, to be a physician first, a psychiatrist yeah. second. In other words, you have to do a history, a physical, a, a, a review of systems, a laboratory data, an excellent mental static exam, 
before you embark on yep. diagnosing and treating the psychiatric illness and the access three medical yep. illnesses. Doesn't happen that often. Doesn't no, happen. it doesn't. But you know, and I would just happen. underscore that this this you know lot of talk in the last few years about metabolic side effects, and I always hear it associated with the second generation drugs. No, it's both there. In fact, before. it was there with the first generation right. drugs. Sure. You have. Um, Drugs with greater or lesser metabolic risk in right. both the first and the second yes. generation class. And even mm -hmm. before 1940, when we didn't have any medications, there was higher a risk. three to four hundred percent higher rate of diabetes and, and, and insulin multifactorial. multifactorial. Right. So right. We didn't make it better by and making it. And that's why they need a good. Ways. That's why they need. Yeah. They need good medical yeah. care. Exactly. Uh, so so th now there's some steps uh, for managing this. And, well, and Henry, you can walk us through some of these steps for, for targeting both psychiatric and medical absolutely issues. We uh, I, we divided them into ask, act, and decide. I mean, it's simple stages of, of assessment. The, the, the personal and family history, I mean, the, you have to ask about both psychiatric and, and medical history. You have to, to, to do a full uh, medical assessment and do laboratory data mm. and, and also ask about the patient's substance abuse, about their diet, about some of their belief system. Sometimes that affects how they take the medication. Is this in 15 minutes or? Oh, gosh, uh, <laughs> you know what? I, I, I agree with you. Our residents, when they go to a community mental health center, they're given half an hour to assess a brand new patient. Yeah. That's totally That's inadequate. Way but too but short. even, you know, e if you're the medical director in the audience, we're pressing you to give adequate time, time for the for initial it. evals. Absolutely. But even if you have a constrained time frame, you don't have to do every single thing in, the, in one visit. You just want to make right. sure you cover all the bases yes. right. between you and the nurse and the PCP. Or you make can just sure it order, order the laboratory order the and send it out. Uh, have, I hope every every place has a nurse that can do the blood pressure and the waist uh, circumference and yeah. and draw the blood or, or refer the patient to a, to a laboratory. But we need to to do the basics of the metabolic syndrome, yeah. which everybody by now knows. Yeah. So uh, Don Henry just talked about the side effects and and mm -hmm. how to manage them. And but one critical step includes measuring you know treatment response as right. well as side effects. Let's talk about you know measurement based care. Well, we know that if you assess symptoms, the symptoms that the drugs are designed to treat, and you follow people, and you assess over time, you can tell whether your medication's working or not working. Do I need to raise the dose? Do I need to lower the dose? We need assessments to inform clinical decision-making. Otherwise, we're, we're sort of shooting in the dark, yeah. um, to use a Texas phrase. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I can't say enough about this issue. It's really hard to, I, I just don't know how you tell whether you're succeeding or not. Look, I just recently did a, a symposium at my university, University of Cincinnati, which was dedicated to training clinicians, practitioners, how to do the PANS and the Hamilton and the Weimar so that they can quantify the severity, measure the illness, and then follow up the patients and see whether this, this, this severity is decreasing, increasing, whether a subscale is up or down. This is how we should drive our treatment strategy. Yeah. And it's not being done. Unfortunately, a typical visit at our community mental health centers, have you been doing over the past three months? Yeah. Okay, take this take some more. And yeah. there, there really isn't fast. a good it's assessment of yeah. symptoms. So, so Don, you know, what about the transition from inpatient to outpatient? A lot, we already talked earlier about mm -hmm. how the adherence falls off. But what are ways that we can 
try to improve that transition. Right. One of the things we've done in Texas is we just have a liaison go to the hospital and meet with a patient, case manager or mm -hmm. an, an advanced nurse practitioner mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. along those lines, to meet with the patient before they leave, tell them where the clinic is and what, what, what their appointment's going to be. Make if you make that initial yeah. contact, they don't Makes always it. fall through the cracks. Yeah, yeah just making an appointment yeah, a big is a difference. good first step. Right. Um, but you have to improve communication because the people, the psychiatrists in the hospital are prescribing a medicine for a certain reason. But when the person gets out, I don't know what that reason is. And so maybe the psychiatrist is going to change the medicine. Yeah. Uh, so they need documentation and they need communication and they need to understand what, what the treatment in, is supposed In this to be. graphic that we showed, what about the family? We well, need to cover the family. The family absolutely should be involved. I yeah. always tell my families, if you can go with them, go. Yeah. Because the families are more likely to ask questions than the patient a mm -hmm. lot of times. They're more likely to get all the information. And, you know, if you've got cognitive deficits, you're not going to remember what your doctor's telling you. They can be extremely helpful. Yeah. Um, and we know that um, that if you make multiple family groups and you bring the family in and you provide them psychoeducation and you teach them how to solve problems, that relapse rates decrease. We've known that for decades, and yeah. yet we fail to bring the family in. therapy and involvement works. And if uh, you burn that bridge... Uh, you know, we lost it, a huge uh, support yeah. system for the patient. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, let's not forget that there was an, a phase in psychiatry many years ago, many decades ago, where the family was considered toxic mm -hmm. to the patient. That's right. And they we would blamed they said, don't ever come back. You know, we'll hospitalize your son or daughter and don't, don't visit because you've, you've caused the illness. That was a shameful part of our history. But, you know, remnants of it continue. They don't, um, they don't involve the family. Uh, They're our best reporters. Let's talk about HIPAA. I mean, HIPAA has, HIPAA has thrown a monkey yes. wrench into yeah. things. We have to honor this, obviously. Um, it's the law. But, but obviously now we have to, it's a barrier. We have to work hard to sure. make sure. It's all in how we, you ask. Yeah, we have to ask you the don't patient. Wanna, you yeah. don't want to say... You don't want your family to come to the visit, yeah, do you? No, that's wrong. Exactly. We, we, a patient agrees, that's, that take care of HIPAA. Patient mm -hmm. consents that, that this family member or those family members can come and visit. Now, I, I think we need to make sure to remind our audience about how this shared, it's not just informed consent, shared decision-making. We're, we're talking about the family, we're talking about the patient and everybody. Let's talk about getting concordance. Uh, it's not just between the psychiatrist and the patient, right? No, everybody has to be on the same page. Right. Um, your goal as a patient might be to get a girlfriend, not to have your voices less. All of the, right. the patient's goals, the family's goals, all have to be taken into consideration, and, and you have to have a treatment plan that works for everybody. But you know that first item there, psychiatrist and patient, isn't it true, don't you notice, many times for schizophrenia patients, because they're so disabled and chronic and so helpless sometimes, they, uh, physicians take a paternalistic attitude, mm. and they don't really involve the patient on, yeah. an, on an equal level. Okay, this is your life. Let's talk about your life. Right. Let's agree and on things. And it's so clear, you know, from a sort of motivational interviewing standpoint, if there's not buy-in early on of what you're trying to do. No wonder they're not adherent. Yeah, that's right. So, unfortunately, we're almost out of time, but I would remind our audience to stay with us for the live Q&A and our after-the-show segment. That'll start in about two minutes. Now, Dawn, uh, what clinical connections uh, would you like to give our audience to sort of try to tie some of this together? Well, I think it's really important to focus on the patient and the relationship with the patient. Yeah. 
patient. We've lost that in these little five-minute visits. Um, they trust you. They're going to they're going to be more likely to be adherent. Provide supports for adherence. Give them a medication container. Give them a sign. How hard is that going to be? Um, send out a case manager to the home. Lots right. of times you can bill for that. Um, you also want to work on being collaborative with other physicians to Very make sure that. that you know what the PCP is doing and they know what you're doing. Uh, it's very important also to, to make sure that, um, if you can, co-localize the, the services. We yes. have put a PCP in our community mental health center, and right. we, we get most of the people going to follow up. When yeah. we used to give them a referral, even to go get their blood drawn, yeah. we would never get the blood back. I, I wish every place would do that. You know, get a nurse practitioner, a, a physician, sure. primary care physician, put them in a community mental health center full-time. It would change the entire culture. And the reverse, too. We used to do that when people were in the hospital. They had the doctor and the dentist, and yeah. they, they got all their care coordinated, and it doesn't happen well, anymore. Well, we've lost that. So, model. Henry, can you give us your clinical connections points, uh, points to connect uh, for our audience to well, their patients? I, I think that, that practicing sound evidence-based psychiatry on top of a solid psychotherapeutic model of care where we interact and engage the patient, get them to, to agree to participate, educate them, and, and, and also use the, the most suitable medication for that patient. You can use orals if you want. There are patients who are, who are compliant or have families that can help them. But a lot of our patients are isolated, lonely. Don't, they don't do anything, uh, and, and including taking medication. We've got to use injectables for those. But the most important thing is to have a coherent treatment plan mm-hmm. that, that engages you and the patient and the team together with the patient. But the That's patient right. should be the focus of everything. Yeah. So, Don and Henry, you've both done an excellent job providing us with evidence-based tools that we can use to improve the care of our patients. I'm certain we have a lot of questions I've already heard. And uh, so let's, um, let me give our audience instructions on, on getting even more questions in. You can call, email, or fax us with your questions or comments by calling 800-879-2166. Or you can fax your questions to 240 465 5524, or you can email us at questions at cmeoutfitters.com. It's a great opportunity for you to talk with two leaders in the field on this topic. Now, while we wait for the questions to come in, I did want to mention some of the resources for practice guidelines and recommendations that clinicians might find useful and the websites associated. We put them up on the neuroscience uh, cme.com website. Um, we're, we've got the PORT guidelines, that's the NIMH-funded uh, um, uh, sort of evidence-based guidelines. We've got the APA practice guidelines, uh, the uh, World Health Organization, and then the International Psychopharmacology Algorithm Project, joint commission issues around discharge planning and referral requirements. We've also got some quality indicator measures, the EBQI, the evidence-based quality improvement you were talking about, Henry. Um, models for optimizing care like ACT and EQUIP, a lot of stuff on the web. I think it'll be uh, very useful. Now let's go to our first question. So this question um, it comes to us from, uh, she's, uh, so if my 21-year-old college-attending son is taking PO Risperdal, should he be switched to the depot? Would he be sleepier, have more intense side effects? May it not be appropriate at this time? I personally very much would would uh, concur that in a young patient uh, who's in, in college, I'm glad he's still going to school, uh, I would guarantee his success 
for for the long term by switching him to to uh, injectable either risperidone constab, which is the long acting form form, or the the uh, paliperidone. Uh, just palmitate, to remind our which audience. is easier because you know it's injectable once a month. Yeah. But there are options that, regardless of which injectable, it, the issue is long term. It would guarantee that this son of this. Uh, colleague who's asking the question will never have another episode. Hopefully, there is a chance they might still relapse, yeah. but much less than than otherwise. And I think the long term outcome well, will be much better. If you stop taking medication for any reason and you're in college, you're risking your whole yeah. future. By right. I see a lot of college kids not taking that. But but then the question was, you know, would he be sleepier, have more intense side effects? And this is about getting the dose right. No, so, yes, so, yes. And this yes. is tricky, moving between the oral and the injectable and trying to get the equivalent dose right. is uh, a the, little the, bit tricky. You know what's nice about uh, in, uh, using injectable early in the illness? You need a smaller dose. The longer you wait, the more treatment resistance occurs with yep. recurrent relapses. You need a higher dose, which gives you more side effects. I also tell people not to be switching, like, except during vacations, mm -hmm. if they're in school. Because right. it, it's risky no matter what you do, but, but switch during a long vacation, pick a night, Christmas pick the break, a summer time. break. Yeah. Pick the appropriate pick, yeah. time for you. But, I, but in theory, if you get the dose right, you're going to you have shouldn't. the same level of sedation, sure. the same level of EPS. Right. Well, maybe a little less, actually. The side effects have been shown to be, in general, less with the injectable. Less. Now, we have another question. Uh, Raymond Lacey from NAMI says, you didn't mention akathisia as a side effect when counseling the patient. Why not? And I think we were sort of colloquially talking about extrapyramidal side effects. Technically, akathisia may or may not be extrapyramidal in terms of brain location. Right, but, but a big deal, very very upsetting for people to have yes. that side effect. And I think, you know, a lot of times people refer to extrapyramidal side effects. Too yes, Akathisia is lumped in it, but frankly, huge. the good, huge good news is that atypicals have much less akathisia than the old drug, although okay. you get 10%, 12%. The problem with that is that residents don't always know how to identify it when they see That's it. That's right. It can be and so it's really, really important to akathisia get the word out Akathisia is mission there. critical, you know, because mm -hmm. the, it correlates so well with a kind of dysphoria yeah, absolutely. and unpleasant uh, feeling. And you yes. don't have to be pacing or physically no, showing signs. It can be signs. subjective. Yeah. It's it subjective restlessness internal. with or without the injected And it looks like anxiety and all of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, I agree with the colleague. Absolutely important. So we have another question. If you have a patient who absolutely refuses medication due to past side effects, what recourse does the family have in the face of steadily worsening symptoms? Do you need consent for the injectable preparations? You, it sounds like you need consent for any, any medication. This patient any is refusing them. anything, yeah. whether injectable or oral. Yeah. We have to get, uh, basically, the, if the family really is concerned about them deteriorating, you have to to give them medication uh, for the court order. Yeah. Well, well, and sometimes, you know, the family doesn't realize how much power they have because if the person's living in your house and you're paying for their bills and you have a lot of power and yeah, you, you, can, leverage you, can, you can kind of work them toward, you know, trying something and try them at a very low dose. And, yeah. I think um, it's a great question because, right, th this is really strategically mission critical. This is where if you... If you purely power them through it right. you know, and do strong-arm tactics, they're going to remember that. Sure. And, and it'll work against your long-term adherence. So the trick is a kind of careful negotiation, a little bit of leverage, a little carrot, a little stick. But you know, John, let me say this. I have had patients that I had to 
commit and give them injection That's against right. their will in yeah. the hospital setting. They cursed me, they kicked me, yeah. and they said, I'm going to kill you one day. Yeah. And when they recovered, and really the medication worked, they came and apologized yeah. and said, thank you for helping me. I know, Now I realize I was sick. We so it does, you can, they yeah. can transcend this uh, yeah. non-compliance issue. The other yeah. thing that sometimes works is uh, cognitive behavior therapy, talking to the person about what their objections are and what they want their life to be like and doing some motivational interviewing can kind of get them to the place where they realize that yes. even though they're going to have some side effects, that medication might be the way to go. Here's uh, change topics a little bit. He, so here the writer says, okay, here is the reality. I am measuring lipids, but when they are high, I am not equipped nor interested in addressing the medical health of these patients because it is time-consuming, outside my competence, and reimbursement is an issue. Please comment. Absolutely. Our, our psychiatrists do not want to address metabolic syndrome, and they were very glad to either have a medical case manager mm -hmm. involved or an on-site PCP. We're yeah. asking for people to screen and monitor. And then when yeah. you identify the problem... They have to have something to do. Job. There's nothing the, to do. The psychiatrist has done their job. They but identified a problem. Now they can just The problem refer. is but we make referral after referral after referral, yeah. and the patients don't get there. And yeah. they're still in a dangerous situation based on their lab results. Right. So I think it's still, if I screened and monitored, I need to follow through just to make sure it happens, that the rubber gets on the road. This is where I have the case manager. You have manager. the case manager. Make sure they Escort get to a doctor. To right. Absolutely. And, and let's, let's face it. Not, not, let's not just talk about a doctor. Primary care clinics exist. Federally funded primary care clinics FQHC, exist. Yes. And and every community has one or two or three of them. So if, just if if, if any every if every psychiatrist can develop a relationship with that with such a clinic and refer the patients there and give the responsibility to the clinic to follow up. Mm -hmm. Here's a great question. Have you seen the data on atypicals in kids? I presume they're talking about Christoph Carell's JAMA paper. Yep. Uh, metabolic uh, data is my what I'm assuming what they're referring to. Can you comment, should we even be using these agents? Now, I, I think that's a baby in the bathwater uh, it, issue. It is such a, a loaded question because, on one hand, who wants to ruin physics, uh, a kid's health? Nobody. Yeah. On the other hand, if you live with a psychotic kid or a bipolar kid and you see the, the ravages of that illness on themselves and the family around them and the functioning of the kid, you know you have to treat them. It's and not a great choice. But it's, it's, yeah, you have, you're, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. And so what you do is you have to choose and hopefully customize the treatment to the kid and watch carefully and, and do the diet and exercise bit and, and monitor them medically so that you can control the psychiatric mm -hmm. illness without ruining their health. Yeah, as Don said, we were talking about a kid in college. If this kid is in elementary school, I mean, they're in the middle of their educational trajectory. If they mm -hmm. bomb out now, it's, it's going to have they're, lifelong yeah, they don't have they, they don't have the time to develop We've got the skills a live they need. Caller, uh, so let's take this call, and, um, and I think we're, we're coming out of time. But somebody from NYU, I think. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'd like to ask a question which is a little bit more specific in terms of uh, management, medical management. Uh, there have been some brand new things on the horizon, namely N-acetylcysteine, which our brethren in Australia have been using with remarkable results. I wonder if anyone has any experience in using that as an adjuvant to your basic regimen. That's one question. Secondly, in terms of the cognitive disturbances in schizophrenia, uh, I wondered if uh, anyone has any experience in the use of mimentine, an amenda, uh, as an adjunct. Uh, the results apparently have been quite good according to some recent studies. Okay, a couple of questions about off-label uh, They are off-label, and that's why they're the, uh, you know, adding the, uh, the homocysteine uh, is, is not 
you know, evidence-based, nor, nor are there you know, large-scale clinical trials, to, uh, to my knowledge. So they're not being used, although, I mean, some people may be using them off -label. We just got back from the ACMP meeting. I mean, my general comment is lots of interesting balls in play for the development of new therapeutics. Yeah, leads, uh, new leads and new, new signals, leads. yes. But, you know, we don't want to get too far out ahead of the data. Right. And in terms of cognition enhancement, uh, matrix and turns, right. NIMH, FDA on board. Yeah, um, we're all trying to to, to study um, medications that are going to enhance cognition. We have a, sort of a plan to go forward. Yeah. Now, oh. was uh, memantine on that? I don't remember. I did memantine. a trial of that. Uh, we did an eight-week trial of memantine yeah. add-on yeah. to the atypical in schizophrenic yeah. uh, schizophrenia population stable on an antipsychotic, and we did not have a, a, a difference from placebo. Yeah. Fortunately, however. Uh, apart from the cognition, which was not significantly better than placebo, we, we had decided to do an imaging study, an fMRI, functional MRI, just to see what changes occur in the brain. And we actually published it. We, we found that the, the, the memantine actually moved the patient's F, uh, fMRI uh, profile closer to normal. Yeah. So there was a move at the subtle level. And in retrospect, I wish we did a six-month study instead mm -hmm. of an eight-week study. Well, and these, these are uh, mechanistic issues as well as clinical issues, but, but I, I want to emphasize we're running out of time. We've got a lot of calls, a lot of emails. We're going to be able to get to this uh, mm -hmm. in the after hours, so for those of you who can stay with us, please do. Don and Henry, thank you both for joining You're me today. Welcome. To our audience, please stay with us for our after-the-show segment, which will begin shortly. I would like to remind our audience to please visit our website at www.neuro neurosciencecme.com for a complete listing of broadcasts, resources, and other useful tools for optimizing the care of patients. Thank you also to our audience. This is the last show of the 2009 season. I want to wish you a very safe and very happy holiday season. From all of us at Neuroscience CME Live and On Demand, I'm Dr. John Newcomer, thanking you for joining us today. Hope you're able to incorporate the evidence we've discussed today into improved care for your patients. 